Chapter 3. The Lord Chief Justice It was not until two months later, on the 19th of September, if you must have the actual date, that Peter Blood was brought to trial, upon a charge of high treason. Chapter 3. The Lord Chief Justice It was not until two months later, on the 19th of September, if you must have the actual date, that Peter Blood was brought to trial, upon a charge of high treason. We know that he was not guilty of this, but we need not doubt that he was quite capable of it by the time he was indicted. Those two months of inhuman, unspeakable imprisonment had moved his mind to a cold and deadly hatred of King James and his representatives. It says something for his fortitude that, in all the circumstances, he should still have a mind at all. And yet, terrible as was the position of this entirely innocent man, he had cause for thankfulness on two accounts. The first of these was that he should have been brought to trial at all. The second, that his trial took place on the date named, and not a day earlier. In the very delay which exacerbated him, lay, he did not realize it, his only chance of avoiding the gallows. Easily, but for the favor of fortune, he might have been one of those hauled on the morrow of the battle, more or less haphazard from the overflowing jail at Bridgewater, to be summarily hanged in the market-place by the bloodthirsty Colonel Kirk. There was, about the colonel of the Tangiers Regiment, a deadly dispatch which might have disposed in like fashion of all those prisoners, numerous as they were, but for the vigorous intervention of Bishop Mews, which put an end to the drumhead court's marshal. Even so, in that first week after Sedgemoor, Kirk and Feversham contrived between them to put to death over a hundred men, after a trial so summary as to be no trial at all. They required human freights for the gibbets with which they were planting the countryside, and they little cared how they procured them, or what innocent lives they took. What, after all, was the life of a clod? The executioners were kept busy with rope and chopper and cauldrons of pitch. I spare you the details of that nauseating picture. It is, after all, with the fate of Peter Blood that we are concerned rather than with that of the Monmouth rebels. He survived to be included in one of those melancholy droves of prisoners who, chained in pairs, were marched from Bridgewater to Taunton. Those who were too sorely wounded to march were conveyed in carts, into which they were brutally crowded, their wounds undressed and festering. Some were fortunate enough to die upon the way. When blood insisted upon the right to exercise his art so as to relieve some of the suffering, he was accounted importunate and threatened with a flogging. If he had one regret now, it was that he had not been out with Monmouth. That, of course, was illogical, but you can hardly expect logic from a man in his position. 
His chain companion, on that dreadful march, was the same Jeremy Pitt who had been the agent of his present misfortunes. The young shipmaster had remained his close companion after their common arrest. Hence, fortuitously, had they been chained together in the crowded prison, where they were almost suffocated by the heat and the stench during those days of July, August, and September. Scraps of news filtered into the jail from the outside world. Some may have been deliberately allowed to penetrate. Of these was the tale of Monmouth's execution. It created profoundest dismay among those men who were suffering for the Duke, and for the religious cause he had professed to champion. Many refused utterly to believe it. A wild story began to circulate that a man resembling Monmouth had offered himself up in the Duke's stead, and that Monmouth survived to come again in glory to deliver Zion and make war upon Babylon. Mr. Blood heard that tale with the same indifference with which he had received the news of Monmouth's death. But one shameful thing he heard in connection with this, which left him not quite so unmoved, and served to nourish the contempt he was forming for King James. His Majesty had consented to see Monmouth. To have done so, unless he intended to pardon him, was a thing execrable and beyond belief, for the only other object in granting that interview could be the evilly mean satisfaction of spurning the abject penitence of his unfortunate nephew. Later they heard that Lord Grey, who, after the Duke, indeed perhaps before him, was the main leader of the rebellion, had purchased his own pardon for forty thousand pounds. Peter Blood found this of a piece with the rest. His contempt for King James blazed out at last. Why, here's a filthy mean creature to sit on a throne. If I had known as much of him before as I know today, I don't doubt I should have given cause to be where I am now. And then, on a sudden thought, And where will Lord Godoy be, do you suppose? he asked. Young Pitt, whom he addressed, turned toward him a face from which the ruddy tan of the sea had faded almost completely during those months of captivity. His gray eyes were round and questioning. Blood answered him. Sure now, we've never seen his lordship since that day at Oglethorpe's. And where are the other gentry that were taken? The real leaders of this plaguy rebellion— Gray's case explains their absence, I think. They are wealthy men that can ransom themselves. Here, awaiting the gallows, are none but the unfortunates who followed. Those who had the honor to lead them go free. It's a curious and instructive reversal of the usual way of these things. Faith, it's an uncertain world entirely. He laughed and settled down into that spirit of scorn wrapped in which he stepped later into the great hall of Taunton Castle to take his trial. With him went Pitt and the yeoman Baines. The three of them were to be tried together, and their case was to open the proceedings of that ghastly day. The hall, even to the galleries, thronged with spectators, most of whom were ladies, was hung in scarlet, 
a pleasant conceit, this, of the Lord Chief Justices, who, naturally enough, preferred the colour that should reflect his own bloody mind. At the upper end, on a raised dais, sat the Lord's Commissioners, the five judges in their scarlet robes and heavy, dark periwigs, Baron Jeffreys of Wem enthroned in the middle place. The prisoners filed in under guard. The crier called for silence under pain of imprisonment, and, as the hum of voices gradually became hushed, Mr. Blood considered with interest the twelve good men and true that composed the jury. Neither good nor true did they look. They were scared, uneasy, and hang-dog as any set of thieves caught with their hands in the pockets of their neighbors. They were twelve shaken men, each of whom stood between the sword of the Lord Chief Justice's recent bloodthirsty charge and the wall of his own conscience. From them Mr. Blood's calm, deliberate gaze passed on to consider the Lord's Commissioners, and particularly the presiding judge, that Lord Jeffreys, whose terrible fame had come ahead of him from Dorchester. He beheld a tall, slight man on the young side of forty, with an oval face that was delicately beautiful. There were dark stains of suffering or sleeplessness under the low-lidded eyes, heightening their brilliance and their gentle melancholy. The face was very pale, save for the vivid color of the full lips and the hectic flush on the rather high but inconspicuous cheekbones. It was something in those lips that marred the perfection of that countenance. A fault, elusive but undeniable, lurked there to belie the fine sensitiveness of those nostrils, the tenderness of those dark, liquid eyes, and the noble calm of that pale brow. The physician and Mr. Blood regarded the man with peculiar interest, knowing, as he did, the agonizing malady from which his lordship suffered, and the amazingly irregular, debauched life that he led in spite of it, perhaps because of it. Peter Blood, hold up your hand. Abruptly he was recalled to his position by the harsh voice of the clerk of arraigns. His obedience was mechanical, and the clerk droned out the wordy indictment which pronounced Peter Blood a false traitor against the most illustrious and most excellent Prince James the Second, by the grace of God, of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland King, his supreme and natural Lord. It informed him that, having no fear of God in his heart, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, he had failed in the love and true and due natural obedience towards his said lord the king, and had moved to disturb the peace and tranquillity of the kingdom, and to stir up war and rebellion, to depose his said lord the king from the title, honor, and the regal name of the imperial crown, and much more of the same kind, at the end of which he was invited to say whether he was guilty or not guilty. He answered more than was asked. It's entirely innocent I am. A small, 
sharp-faced man at a table before, and to the right of him bounced up. It was Mr. Polifaxon, the judge advocate. "'Are you guilty or not guilty?' snapped this peppery gentleman. "'You must take the words.' "'Words, is it?' said Peter Blood. "'Oh, not guilty.' and he went on, addressing himself to the bench. On this same subject of words, may it please your lordships, I am guilty of nothing to justify any of those words I have heard used to describe me, unless it be a want of patience at having been closely confined for two months and longer, in a fetid jail with great peril to my health and even life. Being started, he would have added a deal more, but at this point the Lord Chief Justice interposed in a gentle, rather plaintive voice. <clears throat> Look you, sir, because we must observe the common and usual methods of trial, I must interrupt you now. You are, no doubt, ignorant of the forms of law? Not only ignorant, my lord, but hitherto most happy in that ignorance, I could gladly have foregone this acquaintance with them. A pale smile momentarily lightened the wistful countenance. "'I believe you. <clears throat> you shall be fully heard when you come to your defence. But anything you say now is altogether irregular and improper.' Enheartened by that apparent sympathy and consideration, Mr. Blood answered thereafter, as was required of him, that he would be tried by God and his country. Whereupon, having prayed to God to send him a good deliverance, the clerk called upon Andrew Baines to hold up his hand and plead. From Baines, who pleaded not guilty, the clerk passed on to Pitt, who boldly owned his guilt. The Lord Chief Justice stirred at that. Come, that's better, quoth he, and his four scarlet brethren nodded. If all were as obstinate as his two fellow-rebels, there would never be an end. After that ominous interpolation, delivered with an inhuman iciness that sent a shiver through the court, Mr. Pollexfen got to his feet. With great prolixity, he stated the general case against the three men, and the particular case against Peter Blood, whose indictment was to be taken first. The only witness called for the king was Captain Hobart. He testified briskly to the manner in which he had found and taken the three prisoners, together with the Lord Gildoy. Upon the orders of his colonel, he would have hanged Pitt out of hand, but was restrained by the lies of the prisoner Blood, who led him to believe that Pitt was a peer of the realm and a person of consideration. As the captain's evidence concluded, Lord Jeffreys looked across at Peter Blood. "'Will the prisoner Blood ask the witness any questions?' "'None, my lord. He has correctly related what occurred. I am glad <coughs> to have your admission of that without any of the prevarications that are usual in your kind. And I will say this, that here prevarication would avail you little, for we always have the truth in the end. Be sure of that. Baines and Pitt similarly admitted the accuracy of the captain's evidence, 
whereupon the scarlet figure of the Lord Chief Justice heaved a sigh of relief. This being so, let us get on, in God's name, for we have much to do. There was now no trace of gentleness in his voice. It was brisk and rasping, and the lips through which it passed were curved in scorn. I take it, uh, Mr. Pollexfin, that the wicked treason of these three rogues being established, indeed admitted by them, there is no more to be said. Peter Blood's voice rang out crisply, on a note that almost seemed to contain laughter. May it please your lordship, but there's a great deal more to be said. His lordship looked at him, first in blank amazement at his audacity, then gradually with an expression of dull anger. The scarlet lips fell into unpleasant, cruel lines that transfigured the whole countenance. How now, rogue, would you waste our time with idle subterfuge? I would have your lordship and the gentlemen of the jury hear me on my defence, as your lordship promised that I should be heard. Why, so you shall, villain, so you shall. His lordship's voice was harsh as a file. He writhed as he spoke, and for an instant his features were distorted. A delicate, dead white hand, on which the vein showed blue, brought forth a handkerchief with which he dabbed his lips and then his brow. Observing him with his physician's eye, Peter Blood judged him a prey to the pain of the disease that was destroying him. So you shall, but after the admission made, what defense remains? You shall judge, my lord. That is the purpose for which I sit here. And so shall you, gentlemen. Blood looked from judge to jury. The latter shifted uncomfortably under the confident flash of his blue eyes. Lord Jeffrey's bullying charge had whipped the spirit out of them. Had they themselves been prisoners, accused of treason, he could not have arraigned them more ferociously. Peter Blood stood boldly forward, erect, self-possessed, and saturnine. He was freshly shaven, and his periwig, if out of curl, was at least carefully combed and dressed. Captain Hobart has testified to what he knows, that he found me at Oglethorpe's farm on the Monday morning, after the battle at Weston. But he has not told you what I did there. Again the judge broke in. Why, what should you have been doing there in the company of rebels? Two of them, the Lord Gildoy and your fellow there, have already admitted their guilt. This is what I beg leave to tell your lordship, and in God's name be brief, man, for if I am to be troubled with the say of all you traitor dogs, I may sit here until the spring assizes. I was there, my lord, in my quality as a physician, to dress Lord Godoy's wounds. What's this? Do you tell us that— that you are a physician, a graduate of Trinity College, Dublin. Good God, 
cried Lord Jeffreys, his voice suddenly swelling his eyes upon the jury. What an impudent rogue is this! You heard the witness say that he had known him in Tangiers some years ago, and that he was then an officer in the French service. You heard the prisoner admit that the witness had spoken the truth. Why, so he had. Yet what I am telling you is also true. So it is. For some years I was a soldier, but before that I was a physician. And I have been one again since January last, established in Bridgewater, as I can bring a hundred witnesses to prove. <laughs> there is not the need to waste our time with that. I will convict you out of your own rascally mouth. <clears throat> I will ask you only this. <clears throat> How came you, who represent yourself as a physician, peacefully, following your calling in the town of Bridgewater, to be with the army of the Duke of Monmouth? I was never with that army. No witness has sworn to that, and I dare swear that no witness will. I never was attracted to the late rebellion. I regarded the adventure as a wicked madness. I take leave to ask your lordship, his brogue became more marked than ever, what should I, who was born and bred a papist, be doing in the army of the Protestant champion? A papist, thou! The judge gloomed on him a moment. Art more like a snivelling, canting Jack Presbyter. I tell you, man, I can smell a Presbyterian forty miles. Then I'll take leave to marvel that, with so keen a nose, your lordship can't smell a papist at four paces. There was a ripple of laughter in the galleries, instantly quelled by the fierce glare of the judge and the voice of the crier. Lord Jeffreys leaned farther forward upon his desk. He raised that delicate white hand, still clutching its handkerchief, and sprouting from a froth of lace. We'll, <clears throat> we'll leave your religion out of account for the moment, friend, he said. But mark what I say to you. With a minatory forefinger, he beat the time of his words. No, friend, that there is no religion a man can pretend to, can give a countenance to lying. Thou hast a precious immortal soul, and there is nothing in the world <clears throat> equal to its value. Consider that the great God of heaven and earth, before whose tribunal thou, and we and all persons are to stand at the last day, will take vengeance on thee <clears throat> for every falsehood, and justly strike thee into eternal flames, make thee drop into the bottomless pit of fire and brimstone, if thou offer to deviate the least from the truth, and nothing but the truth. For I tell thee, God is not mocked. On that I charge you to answer truthfully. How came you to be taken with these rebels? Peter Blood gaped at him a moment in consternation. The man was incredible, unreal, fantastic, a nightmare judge. Then he collected himself to answer. I was summoned that morning to succor Lord Gildoy, and I conceived it to be the duty imposed upon me by my calling to answer that summons. Did you so? 
the judge now terrible of aspect, his face white, his twisted lips red as the blood for which they thirsted, glared upon him in evil mockery. Then he controlled himself as if by an effort. He sighed. He resumed his earlier gentle plaintiveness. Hmm. Lord, how you waste our time, but I'll have patience with you. Who summoned you? Master Pitt there, as he will testify. Oh, <clears throat> Master Pitt will testify. He that is himself a traitor, self-confessed. Is that your witness? There is also Master Baines here, who can answer to it. Good Master Baines will have to answer for himself, and I doubt not he'll be greatly exercised to save his own neck from a halter. Come, come, sir, are these your only witnesses? I could bring others from Bridgewater, who saw me set out that morning upon the crupper of Master Pitt's horse. His lordship smiled. It will not be necessary, for, mark me, I do not intend to waste more time on you. Answer me only this. When Master Pitt, as you pretend, came to summon you, did you know that he had been, as you have heard him confess, of Monmouth's following? I did, my lord. You did? <coughs> ha! His lordship looked at the cringing jury, and uttered a short, stabbing laugh. <laughs> yet, yet, in a spite of that, you went with him. To succor a wounded man, as was my sacred duty. Thy sacred duty, <laughs> sayst thou? Fury blazed out of him again. Good God, what a generation of vipers do we live in! Thy sacred duty, rogue, is to thy king and to God. But let it pass. Did he tell you whom it was that you were desired to succor? Lord Gildoy, yes. And you knew that Lord Gildoy had been wounded in the battle, and on what side he fought? <clears throat> I knew. And yet, being, as you would have us believe, a true and loyal subject of our lord, the king, you went to succor him. Peter Blood lost patience for a moment. My business, my lord, was with his wounds, not with his politics. A murmur from the galleries, and even from the jury, approved him. It served only to drive his terrible judge into a deeper fury. Jesus God! Was there ever such an impudent villain in the world as thou? He swung white-faced to the jury. I hope, <clears throat> gentlemen of the jury, you take notice of the horrible carriage of this traitor rogue, and withal you cannot but observe the spirit of this sort of people. What a villainous and devilish one it is! Out of his own mouth he has said enough to hang him a dozen times. Yet is there more? Answer me this, sir. When you cousin Captain Hobart with your lies concerning the station of this other traitor Pitt, what was your business then? To save him from being hanged without trial, as was threatened. 
What concern was it of yours whether or not the wretch was hanged? Justice is the concern of every loyal subject, for an injustice committed by one who holds the king's commission is in some sense a dishonor to the king's majesty. It was a shrewd, sharp thrust aimed at the jury, and it reveals, I think, the alertness of the man's mind, his self-possession ever steadiest in moments of dire peril. With any other jury it must have made the impression that he hoped to make. It may even have made its impression upon these poor pusillanimous sheep. But the dread judge was there to efface it. He gasped aloud, then flung himself violently forward. Ah, Lord of heaven, he stormed, was there ever such a canting, impudent rascal? But I have done with you. I see thee, villain. I see thee already with a halter around thy neck. Having spoken so, gloatingly, evilly, he sank back again and composed himself. It was as if a curtain fell. All emotion passed again from his pale face. Back to invest it again came that gentle melancholy. Speaking after a moment's pause, his voice was soft, almost tender, yet every word of it carried sharply through that hushed court. If I know my own heart, it is not in my nature to desire the hurt of anybody, but much less to delight in their eternal perdition. It is out of compassion for you that I have used all these words, because I would have you have some regard for your immortal soul, and not ensure its damnation by obdurately persisting in falsehood and prevarication. But I see that all the pains in the world, and all compassion and charity, are lost upon you, and therefore I will say no more to you. He turned again to the jury that countenance of wistful beauty. Gentlemen, I must tell you for law, of which we are the judges, and not you, that if any person be in actual rebellion against the king, and another person who really and actually was not in rebellion, does knowingly receive, harbor, comfort, or succor him, such a person is as much a traitor as he who indeed bore arms. We are bound by our oaths and consciences to declare to you what is law, and you are bound by your oaths and your consciences to deliver and to declare to us by your verdict the truth of the facts. Upon that he proceeded to his summing up, showing how Baines and Blood were both guilty of treason, the first for having harbored a traitor, the second for having succored that traitor by dressing his wounds. He interlarded his address by sycophantic allusions to his natural lord and lawful sovereign, the king, whom God had set over them, 
and with vituperations of nonconformity and of Monmouth, of whom, in his own words, he dared boldly affirm that the meanest subject within the kingdom that was of legitimate birth had a better title to the crown. Jesus God, that ever we should have such a generation of vipers among us, he burst out in rhetorical frenzy, and then he sank back, as if exhausted by the violence he had used. A moment he was still, dabbing his lips again. Then he moved uneasily. Once more his features were twisted by pain, and in a few snarling, almost incoherent words, he dismissed the jury to consider the verdict. Peter Blood had listened to the intemperate, the blasphemous, and almost obscene invective of that tirade with a detachment that, afterwards, in retrospect, surprised him. He was so amazed by the man, by the reactions taking place in him between mind and body, and by his methods of bullying in coercing the jury into bloodshed, that he almost forgot that his own life was at stake. The absence of that dazed jury was a brief one. The verdict found the three prisoners guilty. Peter Blood looked round the scarlet-hung court. For an instant that foam of white faces seemed to heave before him. Then he was himself again, and a voice was asking him what he had to say for himself, why sentence of death should not be passed upon him, being convicted of high treason. He laughed, and his laugh jarred uncannily upon the deathly stillness of the court. It was all so grotesque, such a mockery of justice administered by that wistful-eyed Jack Pudding in Scarlet, who was himself a mockery, the venal instrument of a brutally spiteful and vindictive king. His laughter shocked the austerity of that same Jack Pudding. Do you laugh, sirrah, with the rope about your neck, upon the very threshold of that eternity you are so suddenly to enter into? And then Blood took his revenge. Faith, it's in better case I am for mirth than your lordship, for I have this to say before you deliver judgment. Your lordship sees me an innocent man whose only offence is that I practised charity, with a halter round my neck. Your lordship, being the justiciar, speaks with knowledge of what is to come to me. I, being a physician, may speak with knowledge of what is to come to your lordship. And I tell you that I would not now change places with you, that I would not exchange this halter that you fling about my neck for the stone that you carry in your body. The death to which you may do me is a light pleasantry by contrast with the death to which your lordship has been doomed by that great judge with whose name your lordship makes so free. The Lord Chief Justice sat stiffly upright, his face ashen, his lips twitching, and whilst you might have counted ten, 
There was no sound in that paralyzed court after Peter Blood had finished speaking. All those who knew Lord Jeffreys regarded this as the lull before the storm, embraced themselves for the explosion. But none came. Slowly, faintly, the color crept back into that ashen face. The scarlet figure lost its rigidity and bent forward. His lordship began to speak, in a muted voice and briefly, much more briefly than was his wont on such occasions, and in a manner entirely mechanical, the manner of a man whose thoughts are elsewhere while his lips are speaking, he delivered sentence of death in the prescribed form, and without the least allusion to what Peter Blood had said. Having delivered it, he sank back exhausted, his eyes half-closed, his brow agleam with sweat. The prisoners filed out. Mr. Pelexfen, a wig at heart, despite the position of judge-advocate which he occupied, was overheard by one of the jurors to mutter in the ear of a brother counsel, On my soul, that swarthy rascal has given his lordship a scare. It's a pity he must hang, for a man who can frighten Jeffreys should go far. End of chapter 3 Read by Dennis Sayers Summer of 2005 for LibriVox in Modesto, California.